Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, Series 1, Episode 29, or Episode 19 in the Old Money, The Reign of Edward the Confessor. This is your regular reminder that the content of this episode is exactly the same as the corresponding episode in the History of England, and that I have restored this here merely for the sake of convenience. Also, you will notice shortly a change in the quality of recording since the original was recorded when ice still covered the world. We left off last time with Edward at his personal high spot. He'd had to eat a lot of humble pie over the last ten years, and that was making him feel bilious. Too much pie will do that for you, and other things, it has to be said. 
but for a year from September 1051, Edward was at last able to taste the fruits of freedom. Too much fruit can also make you gassy, actually. His reaction to his freedom, rather than his superfluous gas, showed where his heart really lay. And it sowed the seeds of his own destruction. Edward had spent most of his life in Normandy, and the English court was therefore alien to him. His leading earls, Seward and Leofric, appeared to have little interest in court and national power in the way that Goodwin did. So freed from Goodwin's control, it was Normandy and the Normans that he turned to. French lords were brought over, given land and given positions at court. The English hated it and described them as men who promoted injustice, gave unjust judgments and counselled folly. The truth is probably more that, in the local Shire and Hundred Courts, these new Norman lords were administering a justice system and a set of laws that were alien to them, and they were simply making mistakes, but that's not the way the English saw it. So here we go then. All those hundreds of years of French and English rivalry actually started before the conquest, not in 1066. Worst of all, Edward invited his nephew William of Normandy over to England for a visit. William arrived with a full entourage and visits of this kind were most unusual for the time. Looking back, I don't think we've seen anything like this so far, have we? Unless they'd come to rape and pillage, of course. And then, to cap it all, Edward went and nominated William as his heir. It does seem a slightly odd decision. The obvious choice was Edward the Exile, son of Edmund Ironside stuck out there in Hungary. But I don't suppose it's quite so bizarre. If things had been different and if Harold had not happened the transition of power to William would also have been very different. And in all likelihood, William's actions after 1066 very different as well. But anyway, we'll come to that, so no need to get ahead of ourselves. But to be honest, Edward had by now blown it, because the public mood had begun to change against him. People began to remember that Goodwin had only been banished for standing up to the hated Frenchman on behalf of an English landlord. Meanwhile, Goodwin himself had not stayed still, nursing his wounds for long. He spent nine months gathering a fleet and an army, and then in June he appeared off the southeast coast of England at Dungeness, avoiding a fleet stationed by the King of Sandwich. In some ways, this was a promotional event, a kind of marketing roadshow. He offered no violence, but got assurances of support from the fighting men of Kent, Sussex and Surrey. This was, after all, his hood, and the place that had been threatened by Eustace's violence. Goodwin took full advantage and took his fleet to the Isle of Wight, which he raided until its inhabitants submitted, and then he did the same thing in Portland. His son Harold, meanwhile, was coming to meet him after a brief engagement in the West Country. Once together, they then changed tactics. They stopped raiding, and they tried to win over the local population. Goodwin knew that he now needed a larger force to win back his position. He was fantastically successful and was joined by the ships from towns along the coast, Pevensey, Romney, Hythe, Folkestone, Dover and Sandwich. He now had more than enough ships and men, and had a fleet considerably larger than the King's. Edward, meanwhile, now knew he was in trouble, and he'd sent for help from the north from Seaward. Goodwin and Harold knew that speed was now the key. They couldn't afford to let Edward build up his army as he had last time. They knew they had to be bold, and so they were. So before Edward's knight in shining armour could arrive, Goodwin sailed right up the Thames, passed through the bridge, and surrounded Edward's fleet and army. Now the tables were reversed. Once again, the Witten and the armies were unwilling to fight each other, and this time Seward and Leofric were also unwilling to force the issue, 
and this is really important, why not? They were effectively letting a rival back at the expense of public humiliation for the king. I think there are probably two reasons. Firstly, because they all feared a civil war at a time when Svein Etherstrom or Harold Hadrada were looking at England with predatory eyes. And secondly, the last time they'd helped out Edward, they'd seen their support rewarded by an influx of Normans into authority and power. So this time it was Edward who suffered as a result of the Witten's wish to compromise. Stigand, the Bishop of Winchester, mediated a truce, hostages were exchanged and Goodwin came ashore. The Witten met outside London and Goodwin swore multiple oaths to repudiate all the charges laid against him the previous year. There's one other factor worth mentioning about Seawood and Leofric. They must have felt comfortable with the balance of power if Goodwin returned. They clearly felt able to make sure that he didn't get out of control. But Edward's hopes were completely dashed and his period of freedom was over. The Witten established what it called a full friendship between Goodwin and the King, the kind of friendship the Board of Directors gives a manager after ten straight defeats. But more than that, Goodwin really pushed Edward's nose firmly into the mire. All the Frenchmen who had lately come into England were outlawed. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert of Jumierge, who had been appointed over Goodwin's nominee, was banished with them, and he fled for his life back to France. Goodwin's daughter, Queen Edith, was brought back to court, and I can only imagine how she greeted her husband, but I don't suppose it was an entirely comfortable interview. Harold and Goodwin were restored to their earldoms. The only Goodwin to not profit from the restoration was Svein. Svein had gone on pilgrimage to atone for his many sins, and had died on his way back. The Goodwin family was now firmly ensconced in power and were completely irremovable. Edward had had just one chance and he knew it. It also removed the Norman faction permanently from power in England, and so we can hear the first nail being hammered into the English coffin. William of Normandy was left without a party to support his claim in England, and a strong antipathy had developed on part of all Englishmen to that claim. So if he wanted the throne of England now, he was going to have to fight for it. Again, it's very difficult to read Edward's attitude to all of this. The interpretations we can choose, I think, are A... Edward's spirit is broken, he withdraws into his shell, concentrates on Westminster Abbey, gives up his attempt to control events, and hands over the reins of government to the Goodwins. B. He decides he simply has to live with the Goodwins, but remains fully involved in politics, and anyway, he's a relatively mild man whose resentment doesn't extend beyond Goodwin himself. So after Goodwin's death, the sting is gone from the relationship with the Goodwins, and he's perfectly happy to get on with it. You probably noticed the mention of Goodwin's death, because Edward was fortunate enough not to have to suffer the daily indignity of Goodwin's victory for too long. Just seven months later, on the 10th of April 1053, Edward and Goodwin sat having supper with the Goodwin lads, as had become the custom, a custom the king no doubt treasured and looked forward to. And then, without warning, Goodwin had a seizure, and was dead five days later. We see no revenge visited on the Goodwin tribe at this point. We do see the evidence that Seward and Leofric were able to counterbalance the power of the Goodwins, and that this balance allowed Edward to rule effectively despite his humiliation. Harold was allowed to succeed to the earldom of Wessex, but his own position as Earl of East Anglia went to Leofric's son Elfgar, not to Harold's brother Tostig. Ralph, Edward's Norman nephew, was given a territory of Oxfordshire and Herefordshire, and he made a serious attempt to model Herefordshire around a castle and a mounted militia, in the fashion that would become the norm under William the Conqueror and the March of Lords. 
With the departure of Goodwin, then, the next 13 years seemed to be relatively free of the kind of internal strife and politicking that had characterised his reign so far. I guess you either interpret this as Edward buckling under, or that now that Goodwin is gone, the boil is lanced. I should come clean, I guess. I'm a B-man myself, and I prefer the latter interpretation. And I think Harold himself may have had something to do with this. He was a very different character to his father, much more affable, and a couple of times we see evidence that he's more than prepared to meet Edward halfway, and may have had a pretty good rapport with him. He seems to accept the reduction in Goodwin power from the reorganisation of the Eldams, and later we'll see him backing his king rather than his brother Tostig. With Denmark and Norway now seemingly too preoccupied with each other to offer a threat to England, it was the traditional borders with Wales and Scotland that played more of a role in the rest of the reign. It was Earl Seward of Northumbria's last campaign that took him northward into conflict with Scotland. In 1041, a king called Macbeth came to the throne in Scotland by killing the current ruler, Donchard. And yes, we're talking about that Macbeth. You lot probably knew all this, but it was the first I'd heard of it that Macbeth actually existed and is a proper historical figure. It's not clear, but it's possible that Seward had fought and deposed Macbeth earlier in the reign in 1046, but if that was so, Macbeth had regained his kingdom soon after. But in 1054, Seward mounted another expedition, which culminated in the Battle of the Seven Sleepers. The reasons are obscure, but it seems possible that Seward was acting to help put another king on the throne, namely Malcolm, son of the Duncan murdered by Macbeth. Seward won the battle and put Macbeth to flight, but despite gaining plenty of plunder, he paid a heavy price with the death of his son, Osbert. It also seems that Macbeth survived the war, and it was not until a few years later that Malcolm was finally able to depose Macbeth permanently. In a way, England paid a greater price for the Battle of the Seven Sleepers, because when Seward died a year later in 1055, his remaining son Waltheof was too young to take over his position. So instead, Edward made Tostig Godwinson, Harold's brother, Earl of Northumbria. Tostig had his successes, he established a good relationship with Malcolm when he did become King of Scots, even to the point of arranging a royal visit to Edward in 1059, which was the first visit by a Scottish king since Kenneth had rowed Edgar up the River Dee. But he was not a success in ruling Northumbria. He didn't have the long connection that Seward's family had, and his connections were all Southern English. Tostig was to lose his earldom ten years later, in circumstances that made him an enemy of his brother and of England, which had dire consequences when we get to 1066. Edward and the Witton's thoughts had meanwhile turned to the succession, and in 1054, Edward the Exile was invited back to court. You may remember that Edward was the son of Edmund Ironside, who had been sent to be killed by Knut, but had managed to end up in Hungary, where he married a princess and seemed set to live happily ever after. His recall to England didn't seem to fill him with massive enthusiasm since it took him two years to arrive at Edward's court, and then he died two days later. Was it murder? The chroniclers do not seem to suggest so, but there is a strange line that laments that he was stopped from seeing the king, and we don't know any more than that. Edward the Exile's death was the end of the last chance for an undisputed succession. Although Edward the Exile did have children, including Edgar the Atheling, they were way too young to assume the throne when Edward the Confessor died. So, as you can see, the various pieces of the 1066 jigsaw are slowly coming together. Edward the Exile's children do have a part to play on the political stage, 
We'll hear more about Edward the Atheling and Edward's other children with St Margaret of Scotland, whose daughter Edith was to marry Henry I, the king who began at last to heal the wounds between the English and Norman in the next century. But then I'm getting ahead of myself. England was also forced to fight against another traditional enemy, the Welsh, in the form of Gruffydd ap Llywelyn. Gruffydd was born about 1007 and was to be the only Welsh ruler who managed to rule over all the Welsh kingdoms. Wales at the time was split into five kingdoms. There is, by the way, a handy map on the website. Gruffydd had to work for all his successes. By 1039, he'd made himself king of Powys, and then in 1039 he also managed to add Gwyneth to his portfolio when King Iago was killed by his own men. England then got its first taste of trouble when he attacked Mercia and defeated and killed Leofric's brother Edwin. Between 1039 and 1055, Gruffydd concentrated on bringing the largest Welsh kingdom to Hubarth under his control. He successfully captured the kingdom from Huel in 1041, despite Huel returning with the help of the Vikings. In 1047, Gruffydd of Gwent in turn pushed Ap Llywelyn out, and it was not until 1055 that Gruffydd Ap Llywelyn finally finished the job and took control. In the interim, he kept the English interested, with a raid into Herefordshire in 1052, for example. With most, though not all, of Wales under his control, in 1055 he was ready for another go. And meanwhile, events in England were to give him a bit of a helping hand. You might remember a man called Elfgar, Earl of East Anglia. Elfgar had been made Earl of East Anglia when Harold moved from the post to take up his dad's job in Wessex. Elfgar was also the son of Leofric, the Earl of Mercia. He is also, probably by the way, the son of Lady Godiva, who was married to Leofric. Coming from Leicestershire as a do, the story of Lady Godiva riding through nearby Coventry clothed only in her long hair was one I'd learnt at my mother's knee, so it was a bit of a hoot to discover that she's a real historical figure. The story goes that Godiva begged Leofric to lift his oppressive taxes, and Leofric retorted that he'd only do so if she rode naked through the streets. So Godiva told everyone to stay indoors and not look, and did just that. And so Leofric had to reduce his taxes. I also found out that the phrase Peeping Tom comes from the same legend. Tom apparently was a man who did look, and was struck blind as a result. Sorry about that diversion, but I just thought that you, gentle listener, should share in my joy. In the spring of 1055, we're told that Elfgar was outlawed by the Witten for treason. There's really no explanation as to why this is. The event is mentioned by three chroniclers, one of whom said he was innocent, another that he was pretty much innocent, and the third that he admitted his own guilt. But whatever did happen, this is a seismic event for one of the country's most powerful families. We've got no information about the reaction of his father, but Elfgar himself is completely unrepentant. He went straight to Ireland and raised a force of 18 ships packed full of Vikings, then teamed up with Gruffydd. They aimed straight for Mercia by the easiest route through Hereford, where Edward's man Ralph had been trying to build up this castle and mounted militia we mentioned. Unfortunately, the English were unused to these novel methods, and they fled before the onslaught, and Hereford was ransacked. England's army and militia were called out and given to Harold to command. The invaders then had to fall back into the Black Mountains and a stalemate ensued. Harold, Elfgar and Gruffydd came to terms and rather remarkably, Elfgar was reinstated as the Earl of East Anglia, while Gruffydd was probably recognised as the ruler of some disputed land on the English-Welsh border. The next year the conflict was renewed 
and this time when the Bishop of Hereford, Leofgar, in the best traditions of muscular Christianity, took matters into his own hands and raided into Wales. Sadly, he was no match for Gruffydd and was killed along with his shire reeve, compelling the English again to march against him, with Harold and Leofric at his head. The treaty said that Gruffydd would swear to be a faithful follower of Edward, and in return he was conceded a considerable amount of land, land that had probably been in English hands since the 8th century. This coup for Gruffydd kept the peace for over a year, during which Leofric died, and Elfgar took over the Earldom of Mercia. This again prompted a reorganisation, in which the Goodwin family was a winner. The fourth Goodwinson, Gerth, was given the job of Earl of East Anglia, and Leofwin, the even younger Goodwinson, was given an earldom to boot, a new territory carved out in the southeast of England. Ralph's earldom of Hereford was subsumed into Harold's Wessex. Given that all the earls of England except Elfgar were now Goodwinsons, Elfgar must have felt a bit outgunned. And what's going on here with Edward? Is this a sign of strength and confidence in the Goodwinsons? Or are these changes forced on Edward? Although I still subscribe to the view that Edward, in light of his even-handed redistribution of power in 1053, was a willing participant, you have to think that all this power in the hands of one family was just not a great idea. Maybe the rising power of the House of Goodwinson worried Elfgar as well, because it pushed him closer to Gruffydd. And in 1057, he married off his daughter Eldgith to Gruffydd. And then, in 1058, we see him in revolt again. This time the chroniclers excel themselves with the brevity. So thus speaks the Anglo-Saxon chronicle. Earl Elfgar was driven out, but he soon came back with Gruffydd's help. A ship force came from Norway. It's tedious to tell how it all happened. I'm bound to question the commitment of the chronicler here. After all, it's not the most onerous job in the world, with just a few lines to write each year. And personally, I feel he might have tried just a little bit harder. So snaps for the Irish chroniclers, who do a bit better in that they record a major descent on England by the son of Harold Hadrada from Norway in association with Gruffydd. But all we know is that Elfgar is again restored as a result. You've got to say this again looks a bit weak on Edward's part. Is the guy in or is he out? Elfgar lasted just four years after his second restoration and clearly remained an ally of Gruffydd throughout. He was succeeded in his earldom by his young son Edwin, who would have been too inexperienced to fight the power of the Goodwinsons. It meant that Harold had the chance he'd been looking for to fight back against Gruffydd. So in 1063, he and his brother Tostig made a concerted attack on Gruffydd in a style that earned Harold his reputation as a bold and successful warrior. Harold struck across Wales from south to north, from Gloucester to Rudland, to Gruffydd's main centre. He didn't manage to capture Gruffydd, but burned his ships and hall and drove him off to flight. Harold then went by ship to South Wales, while Tostig and his cavalry invaded from Northumbria into North Wales. The two met and joined their armies, and Gwyneth itself was conquered. In August, the end came for Gruffydd himself, as his own men killed him, and Harold was able to send Gruffydd's head and the figurehead of his ship back to Edward in triumph. Wales then went back to its constituent kingdoms and dynasties, but nothing was left of Gruffydd except a tradition of a united Wales. Harold must then have been supreme, popular from his victory and the head of the most powerful family in England. He must then have realised that the crown was within his grasp too. The obvious heir, Edgar the Atheling, son of Edward the Exile, was far too young to inherit, and in 1064 everything must have seemed possible. And what about Edward during all this time? 
he does seem curiously absent, though there's no indication in charters that he's anything other than a fully engaged ruler. The tradition, though, is of a pious king who became slightly withdrawn, who relied on Harold to do the muscular stuff while he concentrated on his pet project, the building of the Abbey of Westminster. In the spirit of never undercomplicating things, I think I'll start on this story by talking about London, on the tenuous ground that the site selected for Westminster Abbey was in itself rather interesting. The Roman town of Londinium had been Roman Britain's most successful trading town and was surrounded by impressive walls. When the Saxons arrived, they distrusted the Roman city and instead they established their town further to the west, in the area around the River Fleet, which probably formed their harbour. This is the area now called the West End, and was then called London Witch. The deserted Roman town remained, however, called London Borough. When the Vikings came raiding, the Saxons abandoned their distrust, and they sought the safety of the Roman town walls. I've put a couple of maps onto the website if you're interested. It was pretty difficult to find the perfect map, but there was a really good hand-drawn map that pretty much does the job and I'm sure you can have fun deciphering the old English names and matching them to the new ones. And there's a map showing development from 1590 that also helps visualise the scale of it all. Edward decided that England must have a cathedral that reflected its power and richness. He'd been brought up in Normandy, so his vision was for a cathedral in the great Norman style like Jumiège, but intended to be greater than all of them. He selected an area called the Island of Thorny, which was an eot in the River Thames, surrounded by marshland. Nowadays, of course, there's no sign left that it was ever an island. The new abbey replaced a small and insignificant church, dedicated to St Peter and the monastery founded by St Dunstan. There are a couple of points to make about Westminster Abbey. Firstly, its scale and ambition illustrates how far the English state had come since the terrible wars at the start of the century. It was enjoying a period of peace, stability and prosperity. Secondly, it's a bit ironic that the penultimate West Saxon king should be building an abbey in the style of the Normans, who are so soon to replace his dynasty. And finally, his decision to build in London reflected a new reality that this is where the capital should be. Winchester had been the traditional capital, reflecting the history of Wessex's takeover of the rest of England, but London was clearly the most successful trading centre in the country. The fact that it had been a central point in all the struggles with the Vikings and between the King and Goodwin reflects its importance. With the building of Westminster Abbey designed to hold the body of the King, this became an undisputed fact. Edward was to die just a few days after the Abbey's consecration. Edward himself remains a difficult figure to understand, as we mentioned earlier. I'd stick to my view that although the tradition is of a pious, mild and likeable man, I don't believe he was quite such a weak pushover. He came in blind to a difficult political situation and he was clever and subtle enough to bide his time, but strike against Goodwin he certainly did. I think that once Goodwin was gone he was happy enough to work with Harold and happy enough to see him as a partner in government. However you look at this, this isn't a situation someone like William the Conqueror would ever live with, but I think Edward the Confessor should be given some credit for the peace and stability he helped to create. And if we took a harder view, we might point out that Edward left a political situation that was inherently unstable. In the 12th century he was canonised, and until 1348 he was the patron saint of England, and he's still regarded by the Roman Catholic Church as the patron saint of monarchs, difficult marriages and separated people. 
Edward has a major resurgence in popularity with Henry II, and indeed he was so popular with Henry III that he named his son Edward I after him. And so at last we get back to some Anglo-Saxon names in the reigning monarchs of England. OK, so I decided that I'd start the story of 1066 and 1064. A little odd, you might think, but I've got my reasons, so that's the end of this episode. I reckon that I might mess around for a couple of weeks before we get to that iconic date with a general wash-up of life in Anglo-Saxon England before we leave it for good. And then I thought it might be good to have an introductory episode on the Normans. So that's the plan, and I'll see you next week for the first part of it. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.